read those two verses, 9 and 10, Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. I've got to get to Leviticus. Let us pray. Lord, I, I ask that you tend to us in this uh, reading of your word, the, uh, the reading of more of your word in a little bit, and the preaching of, of it. Pray that I would be careful with the words I have prepared, that we wouldn't overstep or understep, and that we would know your Know our place as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. This is the same text I worked with last time. This is part two. It'll be the last of the two parts. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You may be seated. Now, I hope some of you read the book of Ruth this week. Raise your hand if you read the book of Ruth this week. All right. Love those Nigrans. They came through. Paul, good job. Aaron, I didn't see your hand go up. It it provides an example, a great example of a landowner and a poor widow, both following the law that we just read of Leviticus 19, 9, and 10. The woman, Ruth, is literally gleaning from the harvest fields of the landowner, Boaz. Great example. I'm going to read aloud chapter 2 from that book, but so it's not like you completely are going to be left out in the cold, Aaron. But um, first I want to share some terms that they're important to the harvest process. And in your bulletin, I've got a, an insert, and it gives you, uh, a, you know, terms having to do with agriculture. And I want you to notice these are the tasks involved in it, tasks the Israelite community regularly performed. Most all of them were involved in these tasks. Also, because many throughout the community did these things regularly, the prophets, the apostles, Jesus too, he referred to these practices in their storytelling. They, they would use and refer to these practices in their teaching, which I'll make some mention of that, not a lot. So I want to go through these terms just briefly, and, and then I'll keep moving, okay? So to plow is, is one of those terms. It means to turn up the earth, okay, before you plant. Plowing breaks up the blocky structure of the soil, which can aid in drainage and root growth. Plowing fields can also turn organic matter like plants, uh, plant roots or stubble, leaves, mulch, animal manure. It plows these into the soil to increase decomposition and nutrients and add nutrients from the organic matter to the soil. To sow is to plant seed. 
by scattering it on or in the earth to give it a chance to germinate. In other words, to begin to grow. To reap, which we talked about last time, is to cut or gather a crop or harvest. Often only the ear of the stalk, which contained the grain, would be reaped to lessen the amount of straw to be dealt with when threshing, which we'll hear about in a second. The crop would be carried from the fields to the threshing floor. That was all considered part of reaping. Now, Paul uses, Paul uses the language of reaping and sowing in Galatians 6, 7 through 9. He writes, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap or will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I mean, so this was commonly done. They, they knew the language of, of their lives. Also, Revelation 14, 16 through 19, I believe, says, Then I looked, this is the Apostle John, in that vision, Isle of Patmos. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. There are many, many instances of agricultural concepts being used in the teaching process. Moving on to the next one, to thresh. To thresh is to mechanically separate the seed or grain from the stalk of the harvested plant. This was done by beating the stalks with a stick, by large animals treading over the stalks, by animals pulling a sledge over them, or by using a threshing wheel, again, drawn by animals. To winnow, okay, so you can see this process is growing. They plow, they sow, they reap, they thresh, And now to winnow, to winnow is to remove something such as straw and chaff from the grain by a current of air. The winnower throws the the threshed material that's all broken up and matted and crushed, throws the threshed material into the air and the wind separates the mixture according to to the weight of its different components. The grain, which is the heaviest, it falls down first. When they throw it up and the wind's blowing, the grain falls down first. Then the straw, then the smaller pieces of straw, and finally the chaff is is the last to fall. In Luke 3.17, John the Baptist says this of Jesus. 
He says his winnowing fork is in his hand. A winnowing fork is not in the pictures at all there in the bulletin, but it was, I think, in the first process, like a three- or four-pronged, almost like a pitchfork, but they, in which they take and, and lift this stuff in the air as the wind took it. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff, that's the lightest, the farthest, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So you get the idea. These these references are made again and again throughout Scripture. In fact, if if you know these terms, and I'll confess I'm never been into farming but if you know these terms all of a sudden much of scripture makes more sense to you to store okay is to lay away and accumulate the grain produced from the harvest and then there's uh, two other ones that aren't really part of the uh, immediate harvesting process but they play a part one is to allow to lay fallow uh, which refers to the practice of leaving fields unplowed and unsown. When a field lies fallow, the soil regains its nutrients that are sucked up by overplanting and can protect water reserves as well. There is a portion in in the law or two that talks about when they do leave the land fallow in the seventh year, it would also give the poor and the sojourner a chance to go in because the field would still produce some crops from the previous season and to eat of, those, of, the, of that food as well as the animals they could go in and eat on the seventh year. And then to glean is, is to work to freely gather. I say freely gather. It is to work to freely gather the leftover grain or other produce after harvest, this the poor and the sojourner were allowed to do to benefit from a landowner's harvest season. Okay, so now book, uh, the book of Ruth, chapter 2. If you want to turn there, I think it's, uh, it's highly profitable. Ruth, chapter 2, I want to read through this. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean. Okay, real quick. Ruth has come back into the land of Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi, who was an Israelite. Ruth was not. She came back with her mother-in-law because both their husbands had died and they were living in a faraway land. So they're back in Israel. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. 
And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young men, to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you, uh, given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then he said, I have found, then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have confirmed comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Verse 14, And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she arose When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean, even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah, which is a a bushel basket full. An ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May He be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with with his young women, lest In another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, 
gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. We are to be imitators of God. And this means we need to obey God's law. If you don't obey God's law, you're not an imitator of him. We need to apply God's law. We need to think and act like him. Boaz did this. He is obeying God's gleaning law throughout this chapter. What a great guy. I want him for one of my daughters. Furthermore, God is on Boaz's lips. He speaks to his workers in verse 4. He commends Ruth for taking refuge under the wings of his God, the God of Israel, in verse 12. What a guy. Ruth also, though, is imitating God. She's a virtuous woman. She chose Naomi's God and people as her own. I want to go with you. I want to be there. Ruth images God by working hard to take care of her mother-in-law. One break, they said, she took. Short break. She's been working here all day. Her commitment is also seen in verses 17 and 18, where we read of her. She gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. She was threshing by herself. And it was about an ephah of barley, as they said, a bushel basket full. I said, Tracy, do we have a bushel basket somewhere? She says, no, we don't. I said, I thought we used to have a bushel basket. I was going to do a children's sermon with a bushel basket. So Mrs. Gap is the reason we didn't have a children's sermon today. It was about an ephah of barley, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. The food she had left from lunch. What a wonderful woman. I married a Ruth type. So the book of Ruth is a great illustration of what God intended by Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, the gleaning law. Perfect example. Now, there are three things I, I want to comment on in regard to this law. The first has to do with how it, how it is we see God's holiness and heart in the command. I'll spend some time with that. The second thing I want to consider is the, the governor factor, the government question. In other words, is the gleaning law a law that should be enforced by the civil authorities? It's a question I touched on last time. And, and since then, I had a, a subsequent conversation with Zach, my son, and I thought even more on this thing. And so I've got a couple more things to share, you know, 
And the third thing is, is a return to that question. And the question is, how might we construct society according to this command? What should society look like for us then? So, first off, how do we see God's holiness and heart in the command? And that's what we're after, isn't it? To be like him. So we should start, I think, first of all, by acknowledging that God owns everything. The earth is the Lord's. It's all his to do with as he pleases. Our response should be this, and we, we've sung this. I don't know if it was here or where I've sung it. I know growing up in the Lutheran church, we would sing this song frequently. This should be our response. We give thee but thine own. Okay, We give thee but thine own, whate'er the gift may be. All that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. He owns it all. And since he owns everything, he gets to tell us how to use it. And in Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, he's commanded landowner, landowners to make a way for the the needy by leaving the gleanings. So this is, this is how you'd picture this. God intends to take his land, all that we have is thine alone. God intends to take his land, right, and through the stewardship of landowners to give some of the seasonal harvest to the poor, to, to give them access at least, to it so that they might benefit. And no landowner, whether by greed or carelessness, should get in the way of God's provision. Rather, like wonderful Boaz, landowners should have hearts like God's and get excited about providing opportunity to the poor that they might improve their condition. Boaz did it. He went so far as to ask those reapers about the young woman who was gleaning there. Then he talked to her and he told her, stay gleaning in my field. That she would be protected because it could be precarious in some of those fields. Stay close to the reapers, he said. Drink water when you need it. And then come eat with us at dinner time. He didn't tell her, oh, young damsel, poor downtrodden, you go over there and sit down. I'll have people bring you food. I'll have people bring you a bushel full of barley seed. No, uh uh-uh, that wasn't the design of this law. He left her to pursue God in her station. But he admired her pursuit of God. And I tell you, each of us, each of us benefit from working for God. Question. Okay. Did this law only have to do with fields and harvests? And the poor gleaning barley and wheat and grapes and olives. Did it only have to do with these agricultural situations? So if you're not a farmer, you don't got to worry about this. 
If you don't own vineyards, you don't have to con- concern yourself with it. Or, or, is, or is there a principle here from God's heart that carries on into other aspects of how we might provide for the poor? I think there are principles we learn about God and His way or His heart that, I don't know if the right word is transcend, but that transcend the particulars of this harvest gleaning law? Most certainly, we learn about God in this law. However, the, the principle, the thing we, we learn in this law that can be applied to more than just farm fields does not erase the farm fields. It does not erase the particulars of that commandment. Okay, what do I mean? We've got to think hard. Got to think hard. What do I mean? What am I getting at? There's another law in the Old Covenant, Older Covenant, that might help me explain this, okay? It's from Deuteronomy 25.4, where Moses taught the Hebrews this. You'll recognize it. He says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Okay, this was an ox in the threshing floor. Do not, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. That was the law. That's all it really said. When it threshes, the ox... Do not muzzle it, let it eat as it threshes. That was the law. Well, that's pretty easy to apply, right? We know how how that should look then. It's threshing time. If you're using an ox or some other type of animal and they're treading the grain, you let them eat. Does that law only apply to oxen? No. Although it does apply to oxen. Does it only apply to animals working on the threshing floor? No. There's a principle here, the heart of God, that we should learn about from it, from that law, that that does get applied to beasts working the threshing floor, but it should also get applied beyond the threshing floor and beyond beasts. How How do we know? that it should go beyond the ox, treading grain and eating. Well, because the Apostle Paul takes that law beyond those things. Paul sees the principle in it. Paul follows, he believes in the law of Deuteronomy 25.4, but he sees in it a principle that makes sense also for church elders And for apostles. Huh? Listen to what he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. 
And, he quotes another scripture, the laborer deserves his wages. Okay. I see how this can work. I'm getting a sense of God's heart in this. What he's trying to accomplish. Paul does it again. Listen to 1 Corinthians. This is even sweeter. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. In regard to getting paid for his own ministry. Paul is writing, in regard to getting paid for his own ministry and that of his companions. He says this. For it is written in the law of Moses. Quote, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. End quote. He keeps saying, he's, he's still talking. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? That's the question he asks. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So then, there you have it. Paul's taking that Old Testament law. He sees the principle in it, the heart of God in it, and he applies it to other things. The law was built around the seed, the principle that exemplified God's heart. Now that makes it a little more challenging for us. Doesn't it? Now we start looking at things in our own lives and we start thinking, well, what does that mean I should be thinking about the poor? How should I allow them to glean from my bounty, from my harvest? What about the principle inherent in the gleaning law? Most of us do not farm, never farmed. I had to look up some of these words to know what they meant, Andy. But are there gleanings that, that you and I should consider leaving from our own material harvests? And can, is it even possible to leave them in such a manner that the poor can maintain their integrity and still kind of work for these things? You're not just giving things away. You sit there, I'll bring you the bushel of barley, Ruth. This idea of the law is wonderful and beautiful, but full. Its, its principle is, is attached to the heart of God and needs to bleed into other things. It compares a little bit to what Jesus, I think, was doing in the Sermon on the Mount with the Ten Commandments. Okay? The act of adultery is sin. But even to look after a woman with lust in your heart is kind of to break with the spirit of what God set out to accomplish with the seventh commandment. Same with the other nine. Jesus always got deeper 
than just what the law said. He didn't deny the externality of what the law said, the particulars. But the law is in the seed. And it's meant to kind of then permeate us, permeate society. Certainly, God expects that the visible particulars of his law be followed. However, the heart of his law is more than the specifics mentioned. The heart of his law is the underlying principle, and it becomes the spirit that gets embedded in your soul and in the many areas then of your life. So it is with Leviticus 19, 9, and 10. The particulars do not simply dissolve and disappear into principle, Hey, that's the concern. You take, well, what's the principle of it? And then you take that principle and you run around seeing how you can apply it to everyone and everything and have other people apply it and force other people to apply it and so on and so forth. That's not, that's not right. The principle, though, it's from the heart of God and it's made concrete in a given law. This is what it looks like. It's the gleaning law. However, just like the ox treading out the grain, this law too was meant to apply and extend beyond farm fields. Now, the particulars can still be applied, okay? Uh, Jacob Milgram remembers in his commentary an article by the LA Times about how 11 states were uh, having poor people um, glean, they said, from the crops that the farmers were going to allow to go to waste if, if someone didn't come and take them, all right? So that happened back in 1983. That Times article came out. And then currently in, in Grand Rapids, there's an organized effort by what's called the Fulton Street Farmer's Market, okay? The Farmer's Market, they take their extra fruits and veggies and stuff after the weekly market to the city's charitable organizations. How that's administered is maybe questionable. I can't say. So my point is that the particulars of the agricultural gleaning law should not be abandoned, but the principle of the gleaning law goes beyond wheat and barley and such. All right, now let's consider the governor question. Should the gleaning law be enforced by the civil authorities, by the police, by Congress, by the mayor? Last time I said perhaps the best proof of the state's non-involvement in this harvest law is because it is a reflection of love and pity and charity all for which God does not give the magistrate the sword to enforce. But that doesn't mean God himself won't judge you. I still agree with that. After the sermon, uh, uh, council meeting night, Zachary brought up a good question, you know, and uh, one thing I, I, I always appreciate my own children for is, um, I wouldn't say arguing with me, but challenging me in the things I've said or teach or attempt to uh, share because it makes me think harder. It makes me 
dwell upon it. I want to satisfy intellect biblically. Um, and I'm not always up for that task, but let me, let me keep going here, all right? So after the sermon, he brought up a good question, and it had to do with the Good Samaritan Law from the last Seinfeld episode that ever played on, on the air, okay? And I don't know if you follow Seinfeld or not, but I, I could relate. I understand what he said. It, it kind of stuck in his, his uh, brain, like in, in, in the craw, and uh, it was the episode where Jerry and George and Kramer and Elaine, they were on a flight, and they had to down the plane in Massachusetts, okay? And so they're there waiting for the plane to get fixed, and these they're always sarcastic and just, uh, anyway, this, this episode proved them to be pretty pitiful as, as human beings. And they're sitting there in this town of Latham, and they're watching this overweight guy named Howie get carjacked at gunpoint. And the whole time that this is going on, they're kind of joking about how fat he is, and they're just watching it all play out, and, and Kramer's Cam, Cam recording it, camcording it. Well, afterward, Howie tells a police officer who then arrests the group and he arrests them um, for the violation that they, uh, they had a duty to rescue. There is a duty to rescue law and they violated it. Okay, so it required a bystander to help out in a situation where someone was... Uh, under, under duress or, or um, becoming a victim. In other words, they should have done something to help the victim during the act of crime. They should have tried to protect him or call the police or, or whatever. So the question becomes, are there circumstances in which the government or the magistrate, because of my, my previous comment, are there circumstances in which the government or magistrate is duty-bound to punish someone for not showing mercy or loving someone or coming to their aid? Whew. It's an interesting question. Uh, back in 1964 in March, cold winter month, there was a woman named Kitty Genovese Maybe that name rings a bell of some of you. She was raped and, and stabbed outside her apartment building in the early morning hours. She was a bartender or something coming back. And it was reported in the newspaper falsely, the New York Times, that 38 witnesses either heard her or saw the crime taking place and did nothing. That was a false report. It was embellished number for sure. If there were witnesses, I cannot even say. Either way, they got discredited for that in time. The Times did. But the case became a topic of conversation in high schools and college classrooms. And one of the questions asked was, should bystanders be held liable for doing nothing in the course of a crime? Are we bound to interpose? to do something? Are we bound by human law? That's the big question. In other words, can we get in trouble by the courts if we just watched and did nothing? If we fail to take action to protect 
or come to the aid of another human being should we be arrested or cited or something? I think it's a difficult question. Are we not expected to rescue the perishing, right? Care for the, the dying or interpose for the victim? I tend to think so. I mean, if you sat and watched my mother get mugged and did nothing about it, I kind of want something to happen to you, right? If you knew someone had very little to no food, but they were hard workers and you did nothing about it, should something happen to you from the police or the government? Are we bound by human law to take action to protect or aid another human being? Who holds us accountable? God? Certainly. In all cases. You're, you're without excuse. If you did not step in, if you did not do something, you're without an excuse before God. He holds you accountable. He will judge you. You'll find forgiveness in Christ, perhaps. That would be good and wonderful. But you must act, right? But before man, it's a little bit, little bit questionable in many, many laws. I do believe that the sure answers in regard to these questions must come from God's word, however. They must come from God's word. It alone is able to provide ethical and moral absolutes. And it is sufficient for the task. I also believe it is by God's word we learn who is made responsible for enforcing ethical and moral commands. God tells us who's in charge over certain laws, who brings sanctions when, things, when laws are broken, and who does not. In regard to gleaning, I don't believe God meant for civil government to punish a landowner who refuses to leave the gleanings. I think God judges it. I do not see anything telling us differently in the law. Find something, let me know. Maybe there's something to be found. I also wonder, okay, maybe there's some guidance. Maybe the prophets say something about why God is judging them because the officials didn't deal with uh, the gleaning law. I, I didn't find anything. I looked some, didn't see it. Doesn't mean the person's own community, listen to this, okay, doesn't mean that the person's own community should treat it lightly, but there's a difference between community pressure and civil sanctions, okay? Surely a man who doesn't glean his neighbors and family and friends, they should frown upon him, Right? People get reputations all the time. If you get a reputation as having bountiful harvest and you never glean, that's not a good thing in the land of Israel, nor should it be in our own estimation of people. But people get reputations from a society who's displeased with their behavior. People are uh, greedy. We know people to be promiscuous, drunkards, liars, etc. because of how they behaved. We can give them pressure as a society 
we just are not going to say with the gleaning laws, at least in my estimation, that this is man's responsibility to judge. God will judge. Almost done. Jameson Fawcett Brown commentator commentators wrote that the law, this, this law in particular, combined in admirable union the obligation of a public duty with the exercise of private and voluntary benevolence. These are not simple things, okay? And uh, don't glaze over, though, in life. If you glaze over in life, if you're not wrestling or have no clue what I've been talking about, you're glazing over, all right? Sorry for being so confrontive. <laughs> we can't glaze over. We've got to wrestle with the law of God and the word of God. They're not simple questions. There is real thinking to be done in regard to God's law and the law, lawful administration of it. It's not fourth grade Sunday school lessons. I think we're in a world of hurt right now societally because the church has existed only on fourth grade Sunday school lessons. And they've gone about life doing things however they can make sense of it. I'm comfortable behind the logic that affirms if we do not biblically, that if we do not biblically determine who it is that applies the punishment or the depths of the punishment, then we give way to tyranny or anarchy. So if God does not give authority to a father, father does not have authority over that. If he does not give it to a pastor, that's not the pastor's jurisdiction. A master, a civil official. If you're not supposed to take control over a scenario, over certain jurisdiction with the carrot and stick, then stay in your lane. And we've got to be okay with some of that. If we relinquish control to someone who's wanting it, but God doesn't give it to him. We get ourselves in a world of hurt. All that to say this, there is a better law perhaps in Scripture, let me say this, that does hold bystanders accountable for neglecting to protect the victim. It is certainly implied in the, re in the law regarding a woman who cries out while being attacked if no one is nearby to rescue her. There's an implication that if someone did hear her, that they would be held liable to respond. Where that leaves us as churches in regard to the preborn and other such situations. I will bite my tongue at this point. Finally, how do we recapture this law? That we might reconstruct society according to it. I think we touched upon a lot of things already. But let me say this. It seems like we just need to start working at applying this law in our lives, in our, in our thinking. We don't, we don't think about things sometimes. We need to force our minds to think about the poor and the, and the sojourn or the alien, okay? Ask how we can take our harvest and give them opportunity. Opportunity to apply themselves and gain from us. Unless, of course, you're one of the poor. Then you must ask, what opportunities are available, available to me to work for it, to gain God's blessings? When people suggest that everything is different today, 
Things have changed. Tractor technology has replaced many, many hands. Crops are shipped to and fro. Communities are no longer dependent on immediate and local agriculture. The division of labor has changed harvest season. I say, so what? Though we may be challenged regarding how we obey the law, it needs to be applied nonetheless. Also, what if God takes away? I I almost would relish this idea a little, a little. What if God takes away much of the prosperity in the land, the land we love? Could there be a day when the farmer grows crops and all of a sudden they're all sold locally and we're dependent on them? And now he starts to leave about, starts to think about leaving the edges of his field and the gleanings for the poor to come, the deserving poor. Further, I believe we need to reevaluate the programs and ministries that do not require the needy to lift a finger. Christian food pantries, soup kitchens, and shelters, if not done right, can dehumanize. If they teach people that God expects nothing from them in the form of livelihood and responsibility, that's not following the law of gleaning. This has been the long, this has long been the blight of taxpayer subsidized welfare programs. Free money, free handouts, and no obligation to work. That was not the goal of the gleaning law. The poor and sojourner did not, did not conclude, free corn. The, the law required initiative. The, the poor had to plan for it. And they had to show up to work to be industrious. But it pleased God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray and I ask that we would, uh, that this text, the story of Ruth, and the thoughts that followed would fall upon our souls in ways that would make a difference, that your Holy Spirit would use it to, to tweak us, to move shelves around in our, in our souls, that... Um, that we live better and, and think harder and imitate you. In Jesus' name, amen. Will the deacons please come forward for this morning's tithes and offerings? The offer-